I remember a phone call to Steve, one of our you know sophisticated uh, angels, and I called him and I said, "Look, I I, I need I need fifty thousand dollars. I need fifty thousand dollars before Thanksgiving, or I, I don't know what in the world we're going to do. I th- I think we're going to be done." And and he, and he he said to me like I literally Corey like I remember this phone call like it was yesterday, and he said to me he goes Stephen, the worst thing that I could do for you right now is give you more money, and I'm like what I Steve that is the craziest thing I've ever heard I I'm we're going broke we're going to be out of business in two weeks, and he said I have every confidence that you'll get it figured out. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is Stephen Wessner. Since the advent of the commercial internet, Stephen Wessner has collected tens of thousands of data points that give him the ability to identify what he calls the eight money-draining mistakes. These are things that literally cause a website to leak serious money every day. Stephen teaches companies and organizations how to fix them and how to fix them immediately. Stephen also teaches how to apply what he calls the eight money-making uh, opportunities. These are things that really matter because they increase financial return on investment in the digital world by 200 to 500% or more in 12 months or less. And all of this can be done without needing technical skills. Stephen is the host of Onward Nation podcast, CEO of Predictive ROI, and a digital marketing authority, speaker, educator, and best-selling author of two books. Clients include uh, Cisco, Advisors Excel, Agency Management Institute, a bunch of others. You can read all the details on, uh, on the show notes. Um, his digital uh, marketing insights have been featured in Inc. Magazine, Forbes, Entrepreneur, and the Washington Post. Stephen's practical and tactical training sessions and keynote presentations teach the valuable principle of predicting and then measuring financial return on investment, ROI, before any action has taken. He has also developed a mathematical patent-pending process that can be used to predict the increase in online sales a business can achieve based upon his methods. I am so excited to have Stephen Westner on the show. Welcome, Stephen. Well, uh, Corey, thanks very much for inviting me, and uh, it was just a delight and an honor to to say yes. And and I'm really, really excited about the conversation we're going to have. So, uh, I'm looking forward to it. So, Stephen, before we get into uh, you know all of this, uh, the things you do now, and uh, you know, I've I've had the pleasure, listeners, of working with Stephen's company, and uh, I'm a and a fan. I'm a, definitely a fan. Um, but before we go there, I want to take you back, Stephen. So, when you were a little kid growing up, eight, ten, twelve years old. Uh, what did you want to be when you grow up? Because um, uh, I won't give away our ages, but I, I sort of know that uh, digital marketing probably wasn't on the menu at that point. <laughs> well, you're right. Uh, <laughs> that's true. Uh, when I was eight years old, I, I don't mind sharing. When I was eight years old, I was, uh, it was the, well, it was the summer of 1980, I guess. 
so I was born in 72, so I'm 48. I uh, just recently turned. And, and you're right. When I was uh, eight, nine, ten years old, um, using the time frame that you just mentioned, I was actually working in our family businesses. So uh, at that time, my mom hadn't opened her catering business, bakery and catering business yet. But my two uncles, uh, my two sets of aunts and uncles, uh, both owned restaurants. And, and so me, alongside of my cousins, uh, we were working in the restaurants. We were doing, you know, whether it was just like cleaning strawberries or food prep or, you know, cleaning the parking lots in the morning so that when customers came in, there was a nice presentation or pulling weeds or cleaning glass, you know, so just doing like all of those things. So, you know, when I, when I was a kid, I was thinking, hmm, you know, someday maybe I will have my own restaurant. Um, you know, I, I knew that I would be an entrepreneur, uh, just because my family before me, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents, you know, we'd all been where they had all been business owners. So I, I, I was pretty sure at least that that would be my path. Um, and just having grown up in the restaurant business, I, I thought that that would probably be it. Well, that's, that's interesting. And I gotta tell you something, I've had clients in that, in that business and it's, uh, it's not an easy business, the restaurant business. No, it, 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 it isn't. And, you know, my, my uncle, who actually just turned 80 this past summer, is still to this day, runs his restaurant, uh, opens it, you know, early in the morning, closes it kind of earlier in the afternoon, not open for dinner anymore, but, but does that seven days a week. Um, and is super, super regimented, has a system in place, has very loyal customers, um, and, and, and still has a thriving, you know, restaurant today, but, but you're right. It is not easy. Uh, my mom ran her bakery and catering business for 14 years and until candidly her legs failed her and, and she had to have skin grafts and all of, I mean, and her doctor basically said, you either have to give up your business or you're not gonna be able to walk again. Um, and so, you know, she had some very serious health, uh, issues of being on her feet 12 to 18 hours a day and doing that for 14 years. And, um, so it is absolutely without a doubt, hard mentally and physically with, without a doubt. Yeah. No question. And what was your first real business? However you define that. Oh gosh. Um, you know, I, I certainly did the things as, as most kids do, you know, uh, lemonade stands, bake sales, you know, those kinds of things. Um, but you know, I mean, I think my real first kind of bona fide business, um, was, you know, after I served four years in the air force, uh, directly out of, uh, high school and went to college while I was, uh, in the service and had a chance to do an internship in Rapid City, South Dakota, uh, for an advertising agency there. And that's where I kind of got the agency bug, if you will. Then my wife and I, after I got out of the service, moved to La Crosse, Wisconsin, which is where her family originates from. And, and started working for an agency, uh, in La Crosse. And, and I'd set a goal. I was, you know, brash and um, some would say arrogant at 23 years old and, and decided to set a goal for myself that three years later, I would be a partner in the agency. And, and I accomplished that goal uh, in less than three years. And, and so really, that was my first kind of step into uh, bona fide business ownership, if you will. And, 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 and that was it for me. I mean, you know, I, I just from then on, it's like, okay, I, I'm going to be a business owner, hang out with business owners, associate with business owners, all in on understanding how business owners think, act, and achieve. And, and, and it's been awesome ever since. And now I've owned five businesses. 
Yeah. So let's, so let's talk that, about that a little bit, you know, um, uh, in whatever order you want. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, in terms of what you do with predictive ROI and, uh, and help people with, um, a broad range of things, including podcasts, I mean, it's not your, it's not your typical agency, right? Um, so, you know, give us a little bit of exactly what you're doing now. And then, uh, and then we'll go back uh, between now and the, and the prior business to start talking about some deals. Yeah. You know, predictive has really morphed over the years. I mean, we're 10 years in now and um, you know, we started as a kind of pure digital shop, if you will. Uh, you mentioned some of those things in the introduction, you know, with, with helping people with how they're losing money online and how they could do better and how they could fix those holes and, and, and do better with lead gen and sales. And, and, and really the business has transitioned even more so today, you mentioned podcasting, into helping business owners uh, build their thought leadership uh, and then be able to monetize that content either through uh, direct client acquisition, through either sales funnels or maybe even working with some of their guests to then monetizing that content through courses, workshops, events, books, sponsorships, those kinds of things. Um, but, but really that, that's what we're trying to get better at every single day. You know, this ongoing improvement, we've been doing it now for four or five years, that kind of piece to the business, but there's always room for improvement. Um, and, and as we look at, you know, the next five years, whether that's, you know, acquiring a, a technology company that can help us boost our analytics or some sort of software company is, is really more of what I mean as opposed to a tech company. Or is it, you know, purchasing either smaller, you know, agencies that are, that are in different verticals than us because they have a customer group that would be benefited by, you know, thought leadership and can we add some value there? Is it purchasing another media company? So, you know, we're starting to think about those types of things to the point in your intro, can we grow organically? Yes. And we've done that over the last 10 years. Can we grow inorganically through some strategic transactions and partnerships, acquisitions, whatever? I think that that is opening up to us and and exciting as we think about that. Yeah. So I'd love to, you know, this is a great, you know, obviously you have some deal experience in the past, which we're going to talk about, but let's sort of stay on this point of, uh, because it's a great point. So many businesses are at that point where they're saying, hey, you know, maybe I want to grow, have some deal-driven growth, or grow in organically, or, or maybe they're saying, hey, you know, maybe we're doing really well still in organic growth, but how do I grow more quickly? And uh, so, you know, a lot of listeners are in that same position that you're in now. And I, I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about what's going into sort of that analysis, like that decision on, because, you know, there's always an option to build it yourself. Right. Uh, and then, you know, uh, that would be part of your organic growth and, you know, you'd hire people, et cetera. Um, and there's always a decision that smart business people make between doing that or doing it through acquisition. So I know, you know, you're sort of in the uh, thinking stage of this. And I'd love to, if you don't mind, you know, share some of your thoughts on the benefits or detriments or why you're considering uh, the deal-driven side of it as opposed to building some of this stuff in-house, for example. Okay, so uh, just, just to share some additional context with your audience. Um, so, you know, in, in 2020, our, our business will do about $2 million top line. Our goal in five years from now is to go to 10. So, so obviously, there's an $8 million gap there. Can we close that gap through organic business development partnerships? I, I think that we can. Although, as, as you well know, Corey, I mean, it's going to be like pushing a boulder up a hill. I mean, that's, that's a lot of ground to cover in a, in a relatively short period of time. Um, 
you know, through organic growth. And when I think about all of the other ancillary things that we could be doing that would be helpful and valuable to our clients as the client list continues to grow, when I, when I think about those things, I think, well, okay, could we, could we, you know, hire some software engineers to build out some data analytics that would be helpful, you know, with metrics on thought leadership and lead gen and so forth. Sure. Does it make sense for us to do that? Are we a software company today? No. And, and so I think the way that I kind of lean toward that is, well, if we can make a smart acquisition with a company that has essentially fleshed out some of the bugs, you know, on their own, and now they have a more proven model and hopefully a, a revenue stream that will then help us grow faster. So, um, you know, I, I think that that's really the trade-off is that could we get into those businesses, but then be forced to grow those segments of the business organically too? Sure. But that probably doesn't help us with our tighter timeline if we're going to stick to the five years. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's a that's a big reason, you know, that people do that, right? Is acceleration of, uh, you know, of timeline, and you see that, you know, with large companies, um, you know, e- even in situations where people say, "Hey, the large company has significant resources to develop something in house," you'll still see them sometimes acquiring smaller companies because it's just quicker, you know. And it's certainly true for smaller companies that have fewer resources to develop in house. And it's not as messy, right? I mean, there there are. I mean, the the reality is is that early on companies and business units, or however you're going, like when you're dipping your toe into something, there's going to be mistakes, and that costs money. So, part of the attractiveness of an acquisition, right, is that, is that hopefully you're going to acquire a company that's already made those early on mistakes, and they've already you know, started to see the clearing through the trees and, and they actually have a proven revenue model. And there's kind of like, you know, uh, all the mistakes have, have, have already been made, hopefully. Uh, and, and, and now you can just add that in. Now, obviously, that's the utopia version of that. And it, and it never runs like that. Well, not often. Um, but, you know, that, that's the whole benefit. Yeah, no question. I mean, I think you have, uh, you know, you have other concerns like, you know, integration, you know, of the two uh, businesses, systems, cultures, all that kind of stuff. But, but, but yeah, but you get to jump ahead. And if you do that, right, it really makes sense. So, yeah, so that's, uh, that's exciting. Um, so just, uh, you know, as you, as you think about that, you know, you've had past experience in doing deals with some of your past companies. Um, so why don't I ask sort of a twofold question uh, that you can address in either way. You know, um, in terms of what you've learned from the past deals, um, you know, what's your thinking in terms of uh, these lessons that you can apply to your new deals? And also, obviously, in that, let us know a little bit about what you've done in the past. Well, okay. So some context uh, about, you know, maybe the, the, the biggest deal, or at least it was the biggest deal for us at the, at the time was for a company that I owned, um, you know, for a brief period of time from 99 to 2001, um, back when it was really, really cool and awesome to own a dot-com company. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was literally in San Francisco working on a Series A round of financing when uh, the NASDAQ crashed. And went from trying to sell 20% of my business for $7 million to as much as Corey will buy for as little as he'll give me. It was like a, <laughs> it was like a fortified nutrition.com fire sale. And um, so, you know, the, the, the deal 
uh, that we were trying to make was we agreed to purchase a company in a similar space, not competitive, uh, very complimentary. We're in the product sales business, like sports supplements, nutritional supplements, about 2,000 different SKUs. Uh, we're an online retailer, none of, none of our own products. And, um, and the company that we wanted to acquire was an online personal training business. So we agreed to buy them for $5 million total, $1.25 million in cash in the remaining balance. And um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was common stock. It may have been preferred, but I think it was common with some dilution protection um, after the first round or second round. There was some sort of dilution protection anyway. But I had to do, we had to raise, we didn't have to raise the full 1.25 in cash in like 90 days. Uh, but I think it was like we had to raise maybe half within 180 days in the balance in 12 months, something like that. Now, our whole motivation, candidly, for making that acquisition was really twofold. One, because they brought audience and distribution. They had a great e-newsletter list. And it, and it would be a great platform for us to be able to start selling products through to that list. Second is they're an extremely profitable business. And so there was great cash flow and so forth. So all of those are like positive reasons. The third reason that we were trying to do that was because, and this is the mistake, was that we looked at that cash flow of being able to save fortified nutrition. Stupid. Um, because our business model on its couldn't stand on its own legs. So we thought, hmm, well, here's access, here's distribution, here's a great marketing partner, and they're super profitable. Putting these two together will then help save the mothership of Fortified Nutrition, which was silly uh, because that business um, deserved to go out of business, which was painful cost me a lot of money personally. Um, but it was like we were trying to do an acquisition to save the other, which instead of focusing our time and attention on improving that business model and then potentially doing an acquisition from a position of strength. Uh, so hopefully I've, I've learned from that mistake. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I've seen that many times and, uh, and I'm not saying it was right, but at least you were trying to buy a profitable company to save an unprofitable company. I've actually seen people try to buy have an unprofitable company, try to buy another unprofitable company, thinking that they would combine <laughs> those two and have some sort of economy of scale and saving on expenses that would, you know, that, that, that would have them both be profitable. And that's even more ridiculous. <laughs> so, oh, okay. So I, as you're, as you're going through that scenario, I was thinking, well, has that ever worked? So I'm, I'm curious now, have you ever seen that work? Um, I mean, listen, I, in theory, there could be so much in cost savings that, you know, uh, uh, that it helps, but, but I've never, I've never really seen it work. Uh, you know, I, I'll tell you where I've seen it work. Um, there's only one scenario that I can think of is not actually when a, like if I'm an owner of an unprofitable company and I buy your unprofitable company, um, I've never really seen that work because it's hard. I mean, listen, usually there's some savings, maybe there's some overlap, you know, you get back office, you know, but that's usually not enough, right, to make up for the unprofitability. The only place I've ever seen that is is with a um, uh, an aggregator, uh, you know, um, or a, a bigger company that uh, is really buying those companies for um, their client lists. And, ha and and so, so you know, they're buying two unprofitable companies and maybe combining them together. But what they're also bringing is, you know, significant expertise. In other words, there's, there's a profitable company ultimately behind it, right? As a sure. parent or a funder or, you know, whatever. So yeah, they're combining two unprofitable companies, but there's a profitable company involved and they know that they can leverage it strategically. 
So, but no, but you know, it doesn't. And, and, uh, and in the scenario that you did, you're right. I mean, I think um, there's, I mean, unless the, the only scenario I see where a profitable company uh, uh, can buy an unprofitable company is if this strategic benefit, you know, is so high, you know, that where the unprofitable company has something that, you know, uh, can really leverage like you know, uh, for example, there's a there's an opportunity to triple distribution or something because the profitable company has access to uh, you know a, a whole uh, set of customer base that would cause the unprofitable company to expand its business significantly. But that is rare that that works. Uh, so only occasionally uh, in a profitable and not profitable you know um, merger. So. All right. So, so that's a lesson that you learned uh, and you're going to apply going forward. So obviously, you know, when you talk about some of these companies that you're looking to acquire, I mean, you've already, I mean, predictive ROI is obviously profitable, successful, continues to grow, co- continues to evolve the business model. So, you know, that would be a different kind of deal that you're doing. You're not looking to save predictive by buying your, uh, you know, your, your, uh, your data company or whatever you're going to do in the future. Yes. Yeah. So, so thankfully, right. Exactly. The the scenario would be different. Hopefully being able to, when I say negotiate from a position of strength, not to certainly not to like try to beat up the, the company that, you know, we would be acquiring that that's, that's not what I mean, but just from a position of, Oh gosh, if we don't get this deal, the company is going to fail because that's, that's really what the situation was with Fortified Nutrition. And then eventually when the NASDAQ and the bubble burst and all of that, I mean, that is literally what ended up happening, um, you know, with that business, the, the margins were just awful. And, and so, you know, we're just in a completely different position um, with this company, uh, today than, you know, 20 some years ago, which, which is, which is great. Um, and, and so hopefully we will be able to find, you know, some good partners. Uh, any other, uh, things you've seen in terms of your past deal experience that, uh, it'll be useful to the audience or that you're going to use to, um, do better deals in the future? Yeah, I, I I think, I think it comes down to, um, and, and I've I've kind of alluded to this, even though I haven't said it, and and that is like one of my biggest takeaways out of that experience was just I uh, had to deal with mindset and patience, and because I was I, I was 28 years old, and and there was so much pressure that w- that I was putting on myself, but there was also so much pressure from early on investors that we had in the business, and you know my goal as one of the co-founders was that we're going to launch the business and we're going to take the business public because if you had a .com after your business name, that, that's what you did. If you're a Delaware C Corp with .com, you know, in your, in your business name, you were fixing to go public at some point. Right. Um, and that's what we were, we we're, so we set the five-year time frame that we're going to go public in five years. And then we had some investors say, hey, Stephen, do you think you could do that in 36 months? I'm like, sure, of course we can, given my depth of experience of taking companies public, which was zero. And, and, and then literally had uh, some investors say, listen, I know you've got a 36-year um, you know, IPO value journey there, but uh, could you do it in 18 months? And I'm like, of course we can. 
which was obviously ludicrous, right? Five years to 36 years to 18 months. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and again, having no experience, I had absolutely zero business. When I walked into our Ernst & Young auditors um, one morning and gave them the valuation of $10 million, and we didn't even, we hadn't even sold one cent of revenue yet. And they're like, yep, that looks pretty good, you know, it, which is ludicrous, ludicrous. So when I think about like the other big lesson and takeaway for me today is now mindset and patience and, and not being, you know, susceptible to being hurried into finding a deal, being pressured to do a deal and all of that and seeking better counsel. Like there's no way that I would ever go through that process without seeking counsel from people like you and others who have done it before, who understand the landscape and are experts at negotiating. There's no way I would try to do that on my own again. You know, what's really interesting for those, especially for those listeners who may be younger and didn't, uh, uh, you know, weren't around during the, uh, the 2000, the dot-com craze, uh, uh, you know, as, as it was called in the, and the, and the, the bubble and the burst, um, is yeah, th- there was a uh, I mean that kind of story of um, you know uh, pushing a time frame forward. You know, people sort of knew the professionals knew that it was a frothy time, <laughs> and they so, so they were you know they were pushing to get deals done uh, to have companies go public as quick as possible because the valuations were uh, at absurd numbers, um, and uh, you know and, and they knew it was it was not going to last forever. Now. Uh, you know, it burst before, I mean, I, I had so many companies and that is exactly what Stephen said. You know, they were Delaware C-Corp set up to go public and, you know, and, and, and they were all rushing to go public and, you know, 95, 98% of them never made it. Right. Um, but what's interesting is even though, even when we're not in a time like that, I mean, let's just talk about the concept of investors. Right. And I don't know uh, if your investors were um, friends and family, angels, venture capitalists, you know, uh, you know how sophisticated they were. But it sounds like they were probably some higher level because of what you said. But you'll tell me. But, you know, even in a time when it's not as crazy as that. um, And we talked about it a little bit on the show. Uh, previously, you know, when you have especially VC money involved or, you know, sophisticated angel money, certainly VC money, you know, that's their expectation. I mean, their expectation is hyper growth uh, and, yep. uh, you know, big multiples and a short time frame. And, uh, and that's okay if you're fully aware of that and that's the track you want to take and you think you can do it. Sure, go for it. But I think that um, many, many companies don't fully and founders don't fully realize the implication of what happens when they take money um, from professional investors who have certain of those expectations. What was your experience? Yeah, I I totally agree with you. And again, being uh, as young as I was and as ill prepared as I was, and we tried to attract uh, some you know VC uh, funding, and and so what we had was you know friends and family at first. We also uh, Wells Fargo uh, gave us a which is crazy still when I think about it, uh, $100,000 um, secured, but $100,000 line of credit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we raised uh, some money from uh, sophisticated angels. And, and so in, in, in both of these angels, you know, we're doing deals that, you know, early stage 
I guess you would call them early stage VC. So like series A type stuff. So in the couple million dollar range, that, that's not what they invested in us, but, but we're certainly capable of doing that. And, and that was our hope is that we could have, you know, proof of concept and earn their trust and all of that. So they would move from, you know, sophisticated angel into like a series A and then, you know, move us forward in their, in their network to get, you know, other types of deals. Um, those other types of deals didn't happen because, you know, early on, I think they could see as they, they saw before I did that, um, that we had some real business model issues. And I, I remember a phone call um, to, to Steve, one of our, you know, sophisticated uh, angels. And I called him and I said, look, I, I, I need, I need $50,000. I need $50,000 before Thanksgiving, or I, I don't know what in the world we're going to do. I, th- I think we're going to be done. And, and, he, and he, he said to me, like, I literally, Corey, like, I remember this phone call like it was yesterday. And he said to me, he goes, Stephen, the worst thing that I could do for you right now is give you more money. And I'm like, what? I, Steve, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. I, I'm, we're going broke. We're going to be out of business in two weeks. And he said, I have every confidence that you'll get it figured out. And that's, and, and I'm, but I am not giving you more money. And then he's like, have a happy Thanksgiving. And he hung up <laughs> and, and he was a hundred percent right. It made me want to just puke in a trash can. I was so mad. And so I felt disrespected, you know, all those just, you know, naive emotions. And, and then I sat down at my desk completely deflated and I started going through my PL. and he was right. And by the next, literally the next week I'd cut like, uh, probably 40 to 50% of our operating expenses. And we were like, you know, not immediately profitable, but we were like breaking even. And now the business lasted for another like eight months or nine months on no additional financing or anything like that, just tough decisions. And, and, and still we went out of business, but he was 100% right. I would have never learned that lesson and how to keep the company going for another nine months had he just wrote me another check. Got it. And and uh, how did that affect uh, how you approached uh, future businesses? Was was were there businesses in between that and predictive, or was that the one before predictive? There there were. Uh, so that was actually um, so that would have been business number two, and and then the so uh, predictive is is number five. So there were two in between, and and I think I had a much more pragmatic approach. Actually, I just did things a lot smaller. So uh, they were a couple of consulting companies. Um, and it was just, it was essentially just me as the main operator. So, you know, there were much smaller concerns, but profitable and, and did well. And, and, and both of those, you know, gave me really the confidence, um, to, to build predictive, which really started out of, you know, a couple of books that I wrote when I was at the, when I was teaching at the university of Wisconsin, uh, at the lacrosse campus and then throughout the state. So, you know, those couple of consulting companies then moved me into academia where I stayed for six years, but always knew that I was going to be a business owner again and, and, and then have that opportunity with Predictive. Love it. So, Stephen, what is, I mean, uh, you know, I'm always interested in this conversation of what drives people to be entrepreneurs. And obviously you had the um, experience growing up uh, of having family members, mainly in the restaurant business, as you said, who are entrepreneurs and you had models for that. I, I actually didn't, which was interesting. You know, my, my, my folks, everybody I knew worked for somebody, but I, but you know, there are certainly people who come from entrepreneurial families who choose not to be entrepreneurs. There are people who come from non-entrepreneurs who do like me. Um, 
what is it that you think, like, uh, you know, what is it that has you, uh, like you, you said, even when you were teaching, you knew you were going to start another business, right? So, you know, what is that spark? What is that thing inside of you that, that drives you to be a business owner? Yeah, I, I, so I'm not trying to sound, you know, goofy or, or trite or, you know, whatever the right word is here. I, 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 do, I do think it's uh, a DNA thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, one, one of, one of my, uh, friends as well as one of our clients, her name is Dr. Sharon Spano and, and she has this depth of expertise around the, um, leadership DNA. And as I've learned more and more about that and why that really kind of struck a chord with me when she first started teaching it to me was like, oh my gosh, Sharon, I, I think that there's. I, I think maybe I do have like business owner DNA. I think going back to when my grandfather was eight years old and growing up in Istanbul, Turkey, and my great grandfather didn't come home one day because he was he was literally murdered in the streets of Istanbul because at wow. the time it was okay for the the Ottoman Empire was sanctioning ethnic cleansing of of Greeks and Macedonians and I mean it was just, it was a horrific time and my great grandfather was a victim of that and so at eight. My grandfather, Peter Marinitis, became the man of the house and he became an entrepreneur to take care of his mom and his two younger siblings. I believe to my core that at that day, at that moment, the entire DNA of my family changed. And and so he had the spark that 10 years later brought him to the United States. And he was a business owner through and through and was a successful restaurateur for 42 years, ran two different restaurants, excuse me, actually three different restaurants in 42 years. You know, his, his, all his four kids became entrepreneurs. His 10 grandkids, which I'm proud to say I am one of, became entrepreneurs and business owners. So I literally think that it is a DNA level. And if, and if somebody's like, nah, you know, I'd like to be a business owner someday, they're not going to be. They're, they, I, I think that somebody knows if they're going to be a business owner and do they truly have the drive? Because as you well know, because of your story, you know what it's like to sleep in your office. You know what it's like to get through all the blood, sweat, and tears. You know what the entrepreneurial story is, and it is not for the faint of heart. And you worked your butt off to make it happen, and you did. And and I think that those lessons, I'm going to make a guess here, probably still drive you today because it's part of your story. And, And you're probably very grateful for it that it happened but it has also made you the stellar business owner that you are today. And you can't bypass that, in my opinion. We all have that story. No, I, I, I agree. And, and uh, I, I feel the same way. I think, it's, uh, I, think, I, I think it's in my DNA as well. And I think I actually had some socialization, you know, against it, you know, right? You know, go to school, get a good job, become, you know, go to law school, whatever. And I did all that. But, uh, you know, from, from, you know, uh, after my first year working for somebody, I knew that that wasn't going to last, you know? I mean, and I, so I was just hanging in there. I got the experience I needed to get and five years, six years out, you know, 
yeah, 30 years old with no clients. I hung out a shingle and everybody told me I was crazy, right? But I just was compelled to do it. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you and I feel the same way. Um, I want to, you know, uh, uh, Stephen mentioned it and we'll, we'll give a proper shout out here. I, I got to know Dr. Sharon Spano uh, through um, Stephen here and she's got a podcast called The Other Side of Potential, which I've listened to. So, um, and it's great. Uh, and talks about some of the things that Stephen talked about. So let's give her a proper shout out here. And then also while we're talking about podcasts, Stephen has this amazing podcast. It's actually how I first uh, got to sort of you know know him. As I, um, you know, I, I heard about the podcast, listened to it, and then uh, I was a um, had the pleasure of being a guest on Stephen's podcast as well. But that's called Onward Nation. So um, definitely check out the other side of potential, uh, Dr. Sharon Spano, and certainly uh, Stephen's podcast, Onward Nation. Uh, tell us a little bit, Stephen, about how you came to to launch your podcast, and then you know sort of. Um, how it turned out uh, into a business helping others. Well, <laughs> I, I I feel like I'm I'm telling you all the um, the, the the bad stories with <laughs> fortified nutrition, and it led to you know other positive things. And um, so as as I mentioned, uh, predictive is ten years in, um, but about five years in, you know, at the five year mark, things were not going awesome. And just being candid with your audience, and I've written about it in books and, and that kind of stuff, and I'm okay to talk about it. But, you know, my business partner and I had just come back. So about five years in, my business partner and I had just come back from um, meeting with a client out of state, um, you know, come back from this trip and ultimately ended up losing that client. And, and, and they were a big client of ours. And so here we are. Um, we've got a revenue issue. We are overstaffed. What in the world are we going to do? And, and so one, uh, one day in May, I, I'm sitting at my dining room table looking out at a, this beautiful Sunday kind of uh, afternoon. My daughter's playing in the neighborhood park with a whole bunch of kids and everything's great on the outside. But on the inside, I'm like, just like wrenching my hands together. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I, I fire off this email to my team and I said, okay, guys, we've owned onwardnation.com for about a year. Didn't know what I'm going to do with it. We're going to launch a daily podcast. I'm going to interview the best business owners I can convince and plead with to be guests on my show. And, and, and I'm hoping that somebody's going to listen and they're going to want to hire us to do their digital marketing. And that was the extent of the strategy. And we're going to do that in 30 days. And we had zero experience with podcasts. And clearly that's not a strategy. It's more of a hope, but that's what we did. And a couple months after, uh, praise God, uh, one of our guests came to me and said, Hey, could you do that for me? And I'm like, do what for you? He's like, Oh my God, seriously, <laughs> could you build a podcast for me? And it's like, um, yes, we can. Absolutely. We can do that. Uh, and, and then a couple months after that, he came back to me and said, Hey, the show that you built for me is awesome. Onward Nation is awesome. Why aren't you doing this for other people? And I'm like, who, who, who would we do this for? He's like, seriously, Stephen, you've interviewed, I don't know, it was probably 150 people at that time. He's like, why don't you loop back to some of your guests and ask them if they'd like to have their own show? I'm like, Okay, that sounds awesome. And uh, so I did. And in, in, in six weeks, we sold a quarter million dollars with the podcast services. And I'm like, holy bananas. I think we're on to something. And, you know, that was four or five years ago. And, and we've never looked back. And, and now it's not. Do we do a lot of podcasts? Yes, we produce probably, I don't know, 150 episodes a month uh, for, you know, our, you know, client list. But 
you know, how, how can we take that deeper? How can we help clients, you know, slice and dice that across research and video and blog and articles? And it's, it's much more than just podcasts as it started with. So, uh, but, you know, we've, we've been very, very blessed to go down that path. Well, I, I'll tell you what, I mean, as we, um, uh, you know, as I have just passed a year, I mean, I think Stephen's going to be episode 57. Uh, I am, um, you know, I, I want to be Stephen when I grow up because he's over 900, 900 episodes into his podcast, the Owen Nation podcast. And and when you, um, uh, for listeners who don't know, when, when the uh, majority of podcasts don't make it to 15 episodes, which <laughs> is what the industry stat is, um, you know, it's uh, impressive where Stephen is and also that he's helped many of us launch our, our podcast. So, uh, you know, and it's also a great testament, Stephen, to how, you know, I think if you're, if you're smart as an entrepreneur, you evolve, you know, your business uh, and you also listen to what the market is telling you. Uh, and that's what, exactly what you did. I, I appreciate the compliment uh, very much. Um, and, and, and the reason being is because I know that hearing that from you, that comes with great context. I know that you've been in uh, you know, situations, as we all have, as we've tried to advise clients and that kind of stuff, and they don't take our advice and, and, and so forth, and they don't pivot, and they don't do this, and they don't do that. And, um, and, and so I, I know hearing that from you, that, that means a lot to me. So, so thank you for that, my friend. Absolutely. Okay. So um, I think we, you know, we're coming to the end of our time here. Uh, uh, let me just, um, before I, I'm going to give you an opportunity to just to let people know where to contact uh, you and then ask my, my, my last, the last question I always ask. But before that, uh, is there anything else uh, in terms of deals or whatever that we haven't discussed that you, uh, uh, and any final thoughts or lessons for the, uh, for the audience? Well, I, in, in, uh, honestly, audience, uh, Corey did not put me up to this, but, but I will say this because I've re- referred to this and hinted at it. And then I was also a little bit more direct when I shared some of my stories. Look, if, if you're going to build your business and you're thinking, Hmm, I'm going to come at it and, and look at the inorganic growth opportunities, a strategic transaction of some sort, an acquisition, a merger, uh, you know, whatever. Don't do that alone. Whether it's you reach out to Corey or, or somebody else or, or whatever, get the right expertise on your team. Don't just you and your business partner or you and a banker or, or, or whatever. And not that having a banker on your, your team isn't a smart idea, but reach out to somebody like Corey, have the thoughtful conversation and, and, and know when you're going into that, understand negotiating, understand rounds of dilution, understand, you know, culture and integration and the litany of other things that go on in, in an M&A type of activity and have the right experts on your team who have done it dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of times before, so that you don't make the painful mistakes that not only cost you money, but also cost you time and opportunity. So I would urge you, if you're listening to this show because you've got interest in, you know, fueling deals, then make sure that you have the right expertise on your deal team because it matters. Well, I, I I did not ask you that question for that setup, but I do appreciate it. I believe in what you said, and fo- yeah, folks, whether it's me or you know uh, another super experienced person in the deal space, on the legal side, on the accounting side, on the on the investment banking side, you know, all of that. Yes, team is super super important. Stephen, um, 
I know you've given a lot of value to the audience and the people, might, you know, I'm sure are going to be interested in hearing more from you. What's the best place for them to find out more information about you and Predictive? Uh, so predictiveroi.com has, um, you know, podcast or free resource library. Uh, that That's where you can find out about us. Um, and, and then, and then me on LinkedIn. So look me up on, on LinkedIn and happy to connect there and um, send me any questions or, or concerns and happy to answer them. Great. Um, and my final question, Stephen, which I always ask on the podcast is, as you know, authenticity is a big value of mine. And uh, to me, it's not about external morals or ethics. It's about sort of that internal alignment with your inner truth and what you're here to do and uh, what your own values are. Um, how does that play into your life, business, uh, how you work with clients? I think it's, um, I think it directly applies to us by, well, not only the the values that we have as a, as a company, but I think our goal is to, you know, always do the right thing. Um, and, and, and realizing that going to make mistakes, nobody's perfect. And I, I think the key to, um, you know, client relationships is, is making sure that your clients know that if there's a problem that you'll fix it, that you'll always do the right thing and that you'll never try to pass blame or create excuses or whatever. And that if you make a mistake, you fix it. And, and even if that happens to cost you some money, you fix it and you do the right thing. So uh, for me, you know, authenticity and trust and honor and respect and, and all of that ties back to just do the right thing all the time. Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show. You're very welcome. And thanks for the invitation, my friend. It was, it was great to spend time with you. And thank you, Fueling Dills, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals. And then they take action. It's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.